Suicide is a self-check. Well, from the outside looking in, definitely. From the inside looking out, there's something called burdensomeness. You feel the world or the people in your world would be better off without you. So you just figure, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it because everybody I know, my family, whatever, would be better off without me. So it's almost a selfless act because you're doing everybody a favor by checking out. It's irrational, but that's the thought process. So I tell parents, like, if you have a child, teenager, college age, whatever, and they've had thoughts of suicide, just every now and then, just out of the blue, say, look, I know it crossed your mind occasionally that we would be better off without you. But in no uncertain term, we would never, ever be better off without you. Hey, everybody, John Chisholm here. Welcome to the All the Best podcast. It's my own special blend of motivation and devotion designed to help you find all the best in life. I just believe there's always a way to make your life better. I want to help you get there. Nothing's going to be off limits in this show. We're going to talk to amazing people from all kinds of backgrounds, beliefs, and points of view. We're going to be bringing you insights, advice, and inspiration to guide you into the coolest chapters of your life and maybe help you actually enjoy your time here on planet Earth. So buckle up, kids. This is going to be fun. Hey, everybody. John here. Thanks for joining me again this week on All the Best. I love doing this show because every time I do a new interview, I get to make a new friend. That makes me really happy. So this week, I want to introduce you to my new friend, Frank King. Frank is a very, very funny man. He wrote comedy for 20 years for Jay Leno on The Tonight Show, making millions of people laugh. But there's a very dark side to Frank's life. He has suffered all of his life with what is called suicidality or the suicidal ideation. It's been very prevalent in his life. And suicide has been in his family history. Both his grandmother and his aunt took their own lives. And Frank has been tempted to that end many, many times. In fact, in 2010, he came very close. And this man knows what the barrel of a gun tastes like. Throughout the show, he shares some very poignant stories uh, about his grandmother and his aunt and his own struggle with suicidal ideation. And we laugh. It's, a, it's fun. This is a great show. And he shares with me how dark humor can actually relieve some of the tension and the stress and be cathartic when it comes to this suicidality. So I think you're going to really enjoy this show today. Whether you've ever struggled with that, I think we all have had some kind of fleeting thoughts, whether we've struggled with it to the extent that Frank has or not. We all kind of know what that is, that that weird thought that the world would be better off without us. And so I think this is an important episode to listen to and to share with your loved ones. And Frank shares some very practical advice on how to bring up the topic. And in fact, he travels the world teaching, doing his motivational speaking on suicide and how to prevent it. So I think you're going to enjoy this show. I love Frank. He's very funny. We had a great time. So please sit back and enjoy this episode on suicide prevention with very funny man, my new best friend, Frank King. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be talking to a brand new friend, Frank, the man, 
King. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, man, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. It's all part of a plea bargain, actually. It was Joe <laughs> or Omaha. No, I'm kidding. If you're listening in Omaha. Yeah, yeah. So Huskers. Yeah, go Huskers, man. Uh, hey. dude, I, I served a church for a little while out there. What are you doing out in Omaha this week? Got a call from a construction company. They said to me that we have been using a woman named Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas to come and speak on suicide prevention, but we've seen her several times and we're thinking about something a little different. And the, the mental health comedian, I believe, qualifies. And they said, do you know Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas? And I said, you mean the woman with whom I wrote four books on men's mental health? That, <laughs> you mean that Sally Spencer Thomas? <laughs> that one? That one? Oh, yeah. All the way from Eugene, Oregon, right? That's kind of a that's kind of a long flight. You fly straight to Denver and then over to the cornfields. and Yeah. Well, what a, lot, a lot of people don't know that is that construction has the highest rate of suicide of any industry. What? In yeah. I thought it, a psychiatrist. No, not psychiatrist, not even in the top 10. The construction is male heavy, lots of men, lots of tough guys. Eight out of 10 people who die by suicide these days are men. And the numbers, the last numbers from the CDC was 2018. And they said roughly a thousand people die by accident in construction every year. And approximately 5,000 die by suicide, which means you're five times more likely to jump off a building than fall off it, which is just nuts. Oh, oh my God. What, what, what's the stress in construction for crime? Seasonal work, deadlines, injuries, often treated with opioids, male heavy, you know, it's tough guys who don't reach out yeah. for help. Now, I grew up in the South, as it sounds like you did, or somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, Big yeah. boys don't cry. That's raised it's true <clears throat> a lot of guys are like that they figure their big boys don't cry so they don't tell anybody or reach out man oh dude i'm southern to the core i got grits for brains so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my friend the southerners homemade man so take us back to kind of the genesis of some of this for you and how you became the mental health comedian how far are you want me to go back, John? Uh, we got to go to at least 2010. I know that. I know about 2010. So we got to at least do that. But, well, I mean, you were a writer for Jay Leno for 20 years, for crying out loud. And so all the suicide stuff was going on, the suicidality and just this voice in your head for all those years, even while you were writing that. And Leno didn't do a lot of dark comedy, did he? No, it was all topical. All straight out of the newspaper. Yeah. What did and well. Let's wherever go, you want to go, wherever you want to go. Go back. This is the Wayback Machine like they do on Rocky and, no, what was it? The Professor, the dog, and, you know, right, there were characters on Rocky and Bowie that would go in the Wayback. <laughs> Wayback, Wayback Machine. Yeah, we're going to go back to 1965. All right, here we, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, right. fourth year, fourth grade, and I, my entire family is terribly nearsighted. I mean, really bad. I wrote a joke one time that we are descended from the people who occupied the island of myopia, myopia being short-sighted or near-sighted, <laughs> but which by the way, the, the island was conquered over and over because the native population never saw the enemy coming. <laughs> so I, I had to wear glasses, but you know, John, I imagine you're old enough to remember in the sixties, there were no fashion frames like the ones you have now. They're, they're, they're fashionable. They're clear, you know? We had these sort of Buddy Holly black plastic. Girls had cat eye glasses in a couple of colors. And I, I'm so vain. I did not want to wear my glasses, but my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Dark, knew I had to. 
And she thought the problem was I was afraid what the other kids would say. So she had an idea, pull the bandaid off all at once. Got me to the front of the room, turned me away from the class, put my glasses on me, turned me back to the class. She looks down at me and she goes, see, you look intelligent. I looked up first joke I ever told and said, yes, that would explain all the laughing. <laughs> and she was hysterical. <laughs> And she had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. And that moment, John, I decided I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. You knew. You just knew. I knew. I no. knew it. I knew it from that moment on. 12th grade, did the talent show. Nobody ever done stand-up. One. My mom, big on education, said, son, you're going to college before you become a comedian. I don't care what you do when you get done. This is a quote. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Carolina, got a couple of college degrees, moved to San Diego. San Diego has, to this day, in the same place, a branch of the world-famous comedy store, and they had an open mic night. They actually had two or three open mic nights. I went down there, middle of my five minutes, talking about the culture shock, moving in 1980 from North Carolina to California. And halfway through my set, I heard a voice in my head, you're home. Wow. Mm -hmm. Second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. Since then, John, I've threatened to write a keynote speech called, What Could You Do If You Didn't Know No Better? <laughs> I had no idea how hard it was. I, if I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. Right. So I said to my girlfriend at the time, that's, that, was, that was April 1st, 84. By December of 85, I had good enough credits and promo or whatever. I got 10 weeks booked on the road in the, in the, in the early 86. I said to my girlfriend, now my wife, 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figured she'd go, oh, heck no. She goes, yeah. So we gave up our jobs, apartment, jumped in my tiny little Dodge Colt, and we were on the road together, she and I, for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Oh, my God. Goodness, I'd have had a divorce on my hands. Well, it's, it's one of those things, either drives you closer together or drives you completely apart. Well, she's some one of my friends asked me, you still married to Wendy? Oh, come on. Who divorces a woman like that? So, <laughs> and back then, a lot of comics you know now are famous for just getting started. I, I worked with Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Ellen and Rosie and Foxworthy and Ron White and Bill Engvall. Opened up for the Beach Boys and Neil Sedak, Lou Rawls, two nights at the Hotel Del Coronado on New Year's Eve. You know, there you uh, go. Wow. Love my Yeah, yeah, yeah. Randy Travis, 5,000 people a night, two shows in Michigan and Amphitheater. Mm. It was a good run. And we had a ball. Yeah. You know, late 20s to late 30s, just a great time to be doing that traveling footloose, fancy free. Mm -hmm. Got hired by a radio station in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina to help. To co host a morning show, and I took a number one morning show and I drove it all the way to number six in 18 months, which is not a good thing if you don't know anything about radio. Friend of mine, you didn't drive in the ground, you drove that son of a gun into the middle earth. <laughs> yeah. So by the time I got done with radio, the comedy club boom had busted. And I, hey, but here's the, the kicker was all my comedy had always been very clean. I'm writing for Leno, I'm writing topical jokes for Leno. I was thinking, I'm not going to be dirty. And and so I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I'll become a corporate comedian. I'll jump ship from the bar room to the boardroom. And one of my comedy friends, comic friends, said to me, what's there between a club comic and a corporate comic? And I said, about $5,000 a night plus travel. <laughs> uh, I'm no math major, John, but I knew. You know, you know, the bank account was smiling. So 
rode that horse until about 2007. Then the recession hits, bookings drop off 80%. Mm. We got some negative cash flow on rental properties. Our mortgage payments like 2,300 a month. And we just, I just ran out of cash and we had to file chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gut tastes like. Mm. I practiced, went over the bar and pulled the hair back, stuck in my mouth to see if I could do it because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. So I was working more to my wife dead than alive. I can't fix it, but I can fix her financially. I'll just go ahead and take myself out. She gets the million. Call my insurance agent. Fortunately, I had a two-year suicide clause and it only had the policy 22 months. I had to wait 50 days to kill myself. <laughs> a 60-day suicide waiting period. Yes, exactly. Sorry, sir. You cannot take your life. <laughs> uh, and my agent said that when he realized what I was asking, he goes, and don't do it. Don't see, he had gotten calls like that and the power had been enforced and he delivered checks. And so he said, he said later when I called him back, he told his wife, I think Frank's going to kill himself. Hmm. But as you know, and I mentioned him in my first TEDx talk. So I can't remember day 60, 61, 62, things must've gotten just a little bit better. You know, bankruptcy, the wonderful thing about bankruptcy is the phone call stopped. Somebody calls you and says, we want money. Call my attorney. Uh, and a guy, a guy said to me, last call I got, he goes, I said, well, here's my attorney's number. Give her a call. And he goes, that's not good enough. And I said, you know, the best thing about bankruptcy is he goes, no, I said this click. <laughs> wow. So, wow. 12 years, two years ago, August 10th. The bankruptcy came off my credit and my wife's credit, you know, 10 Congratulations. years. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I would not, I mean, the relief, we clawed our way back, stuck together. Again, bankruptcy is one of those things that either drives a couple together or drives you completely apart. Hmm. And you know what else it does, John? If there's a silver lining, it forces you to figure out what it is you really need versus what you want. Hmm. I mean, we didn't have enough money to buy a subscription to the local newspaper. My wife's aunt gave us a subscription. And when the first one came in the mailbox, I cried hmm. because that's how broke we were. But we were a lot luckier than a lot of people. My wife and I, my wife had a little house in Oregon. We had it as a rental. We got a great bankruptcy attorney. I didn't get the guy on the billboard. I asked two attorneys in town, okay, who's the best bankruptcy attorney in the county? They both named the same woman. And she was able to protect that, you know, homestead that house for us. So we had some place to go. A lot of people didn't have any place to go. So we felt very fortunate given, and every morning we, we did something we, we do to this day. We played the grateful game. Every morning we were walking the dogs. We had to name three things we were grateful for. And it couldn't be the same three as the day before, you know, just change the frame. So you realize, you know, what you have, not what you lost, but what you have left, what, what, you know, what's good in your life. Mm. So uh, anyway, we clawed our way back and, and, and my wife just see 10 days ago she was able to semi-retire she'd been working she'd been working full-time to provide us medical insurance i get that question all the time when i'm on a cruise did you bring your wife on a cruise no somebody's got to have a real job health insurance exactly i got medicare last november <clears throat> she'll be getting in march we just figured you know what we can pay the cobra for five months so she's working weekends and she is thrilled mm. So you are bankrupt and I mean, way back, you know, thank God you're out of it now, but that was the first kind of feeling of suicidal uh, intentions for you or no. All right. Yeah. Well, take us into that. 
It runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother, I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. You know, back then, nowadays, they would take a child like that to therapy. But, you know, my mother's generation wasn't wired that way. Mm -hmm. They, we just didn't talk about it. And, and my mother prayed. She, she made a deal with God. If I could forget it, she'd give him 10 years off the end of her life. And, you know, she died at 62 and her, her, I mean, at, at people in her age bracket lived to about 72. So who's to say <laughs> he didn't take the deal because wow. I forgot it until my, until 2012. And the family made up a myth. If Frank ever asked about that incident, you are to tell him when he, when, you, when Dixie opened the door that his great aunt was in there with her hands folded in prayer and looking serene. So I mentioned that to my cousin, who's 10 years older, who obviously would remember the whole thing. And he goes, serene, you, my butt, the old lady fell out, pinned you to the floor. Mm. All came rushing back, John, whatever's holding back compartmentalized came flying back. So can, you, can, can you back up a little bit? Cause I know the story, but can you, for our listeners kind of, I mean, you know, it's just a sad, a little bit gruesome story, but just so they know what you're talking about now. Yes. A trigger warning. It's horror movie horror. So my mother's mother had died by suicide. About four or five years later, my great aunt was struggling with depression. My mother could not reach her on the phone. Same thing had happened with her mother. She couldn't reach her on the phone. So my mother got panicked that my great aunt would do something to end her life. So she bundled me in the car at the age of four. We drove over, let ourselves into my great aunt's apartment. Everything was in place until we got to the kitchen. And all the food that should have been in the refrigerator, the milk, the butter, the eggs, cheese, was on the counter. Now, probably there are people listening, watching, who remember that back in the day, refrigerators didn't have a magnetic seal to hold the door. They had a latch. So if you crawled inside and pulled the door to behind you, that's it. And that's what my great aunt had done. And apparently she had tried to claw her way out having changed her mind. So my mother, not realizing any of this, walks over to the refrigerator. I'm holding onto her skirt tail, swings the refrigerator door open, and my great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor. Mm -hmm. We were face to face, her face frozen at last moment of horror. I scream, John, they tell me for days. Mm. Yeah, and then, then it, was, it was walled off somehow, compartmentalized in my head, but my cousin, as my mother would say, your cousin in his infinite wisdom decided to say the story. <laughs> yeah. God bless him. And yeah. then you're traumatized because it all comes back as yeah. aunt falls on you dead. Oh so, my gosh. After the recession, meeting planners, speakers bureaus, we're chatting. And they said, look, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you five grand anymore just to be funny. You've got to teach the audience something. Don't you have something you could teach the audience? So I read a book by a friend of mine named Judy Carter. She wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Nice. I went into the book thinking I got nothing, and she sort of walks you through the process. Halfway through, I thought, I do. I do. Given my family history, John, more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And <clears throat> my two mental illnesses, depression and chronic suicidal ideation, I thought to myself, if I can get some suicide prevention training, some certification, I can keynote on suicide prevention. And so I did. I got a couple of designations, certifications on suicide prevention. 
And then my second hurdle was I've been a funny guy for 25 years. How do I convince anybody I can do something serious? And my wife said, do a TED talk. And I said, what's a TED talk? She showed me. And that week I happened to get an application from a TEDx in Vancouver, British Columbia. They said, do you want to apply? So I applied, got it. The way I got it, John, was I told the story. I actually flew up there. I didn't audition over Zoom. I got on a plane, Eugene, to, to Vancouver. And I told the story of my great aunt. And man, they were apoplectic. <laughs> they said, you're on. So <laughs> that's how, and from that, I got two more. I got contacted by two events. They said, do you have any more mental health ideas? Yes. And then I applied for four more and got those. So each one. So that's what I began to do. I began to speak on suicide prevention. And then as I tell my coaching clients, speaker coaching clients, you need to pick a lane. So I decided I was just going to be a suicide prevention speaker. I've got other speeches that I'll do if you have the money, but I don't market those. And I said, and you got to figure out who are the people that need to hear what you have to say. Who's going to pay you for this? Exactly. Ideal clients. And it occurred to me, there's a top 10 list of at-risk occupations for suicide. So I started with dentists and then veterinarians and then physicians, attorneys, construction, agriculture, and see, construction, agriculture. How many is that? Dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, construction, agriculture, six of them. And I'll only market to those guys, those industries, and only to their associations where they have an annual meeting, they got money to pay a speaker. And, and the benefit of having one lane, suicide prevention, when somebody calls me up, I don't have to convince them, John, that suicide prevention is a good idea. They know that. Exactly. And sales half done. They're just trying to figure out which speaker they're going to use. And, you know, the comedian thing, and it's not jokes. It's just funny person story. Like a friend of mine was at a keynote the other day. And I talk about not pulling the trigger. And he comes up afterwards, hey, man. I come, he didn't pull the trigger. I go, hey man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> exactly. And it's a way of destigmatizing the whole thing. And mm -hmm. and my superpower, and I learned this from Brene Brown, reading her book on vulnerability. My superpower is vulnerability. See a man get up on stage and talk about things important, mental and emotional, and get choked up when I tell these stories. It it allows other people in the audience permission to give voice to their experiences mm. and feelings without any recrimination. It, I tell my speakers who speak on mental health, you need to allow at least half an hour after you're done to talk to people who want to speak to you individually. Cause it, sometimes it's two people, sometimes it's 10. And so I do, I, allow, I say, like, we'll do some general Q and A and you got a question or story or whatever you don't want to share with everybody. I'll hang out yeah. and, uh, and we, we'll do it individually. And I mean, I have a condition called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I tell the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, hell, I could just kill myself. <laughs> Almost every time I've spoken, John, since 2014, there's been one person in the audience, sometimes more, who have chronic suicidal ideation. They did not know it had an alien. They thought there was some kind of freak and all alone. I had a young woman come up after a college show. She said, thanks for your keynotes. You're welcome. She goes, but God tell you, made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, no, you know the story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself. Yeah, I've been having those thoughts all my life. 
I didn't know that was a thing, had a name. Mm. I just thought I was some kind of freak and all alone. And then you said that out loud. And I realized the first time in my life, I'm not alone. And I wept. Mm. There's a ROI. Yeah. Well, that's a superpower to be vulnerable and open up something that is so dark and even goes back into family ancestry and then to, to, to use it to open people, you know, to the realization of their own struggles. But talk a little bit about the dark humor. You were talking about that a moment ago, but, uh, you know, when you responded, but how can dark humor, how can joking around about something so serious be therapeutic and, you know, healing in some way? Well, it's, it's disarming, I think, to the audience. Like when I say, I think I was, you know, it runs in my family, so forth and so on. And I came close enough to killing myself. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. I pause and then go, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. <laughs> and they sort of this nervous, nervous laugh. Like, yeah. should I be laughing at this? And then I followed up with the story I just told you about the guy who came up. Now they know they're supposed to laugh. When I was doing the TEDx, if you do a TEDx, there should be some humor in there. So I said, you know what? I looked up. TEDx talks on suicide, figuring there'd be dozens. I found three out of all the hundreds of thousands of talks on TED, there are three talks on suicide. And then I said to the audience, well, duh, if you're really good at suicide, you're not going to be recording a TEDx talk. <laughs> now they're laughing full out. My grandmother killed herself with a gas stove. My great aunt killed herself with a refrigerator. I said, when did my family and major applied? I thought my Sears, I tear up. So that's something about being that open and that raw, you know, and poking fun at yourself that allows other people, again, to destigmatize. Which I was just talking before you and I got on the phone, John. I got on Zoom to a woman on the phone to one of my TEDx country clients. And she was struggling. She'd been drinking. I didn't realize steadily for several years. Finally got into a, an alcohol rehab in house program. And apparently it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It looked really nice, but terms of treatment. And she mentioned to them that she was having caused suicide. And within moments, she was locked down for three days, involuntary detention order. And that's one of the reasons that people don't come out and say, I'm having thoughts of suicide because in certain states, most of them, you risk being locked down for three days. So I wish, I wish people were able to give voice to their feelings on this without having to worry about, you know, getting locked down. Mm. I'm pretty tired, man. I'm pretty worn out. Maybe I should just verbalize it and then get a little three-day rest or something. You know, I got to tell you, John, I've had times in my life with that three-day rest, three hots and cots, somebody else fixing the meals. Son, yeah. good to me. Pretty, pretty. Damn. <laughs> You're going to be here for three days. Swish. Uh, all right. So 2010, was the closest you ever really came to taking your life despite this lifetime of this chronic suicidal ideation. What, yeah, what, what? The first uh, time, the first time I had suicidal thoughts was in San Diego in 1984, January. I'm driving down highway 163 about five in the afternoon. I'm married to a lovely woman, my high school sweetheart, but I'm miserable. We don't belong together. I knew that going in. Just did not have the testicular fortitude to back out. And I'm selling insurance for an old man's company, which is, insurance is a great business, but it just wasn't for me. And I was not doing what I believe I was born to do, stand-up comedy. I wasn't going to open mic night. And I had that first thought, why don't you just kill yourself? 
And so my second thought, John, was very empowering. Well, wait a minute. If I stay where I am, stay put, I'm going to kill myself. So why couldn't I just divorce my wife, quit my job, try stand up, which is where I believe I belong. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, I can always kill myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got a dead talk called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Because if I'd stayed put, I would have killed myself. What I got to lose? I had absolutely nothing to lose. I think you need t-shirts to say, I could always kill myself. You know what? You are absolutely right. <laughs> or maybe three things. I can do this. I can do that. Or, or I can kill myself. myself. Yeah. yeah. Where's the difference? What do you think the difference is, Frank, between normal people who might occasionally... You know, because of maybe they're not chronically depressed or clinically depressed, but things are not going well. Maybe there is a divorce. Maybe there's something that's just weighing heavily and, and, and they have a brief moment of, of considering it. And or maybe, I mean, when do you decide you got a problem with suicidal ideation? Where, where's that line? Well, for me, it, it's always there. It's like music in a grocery store. You know, you don't really notice the music unless it's a song you really like or really dislike. It's always playing underneath. So m many people become situationally depressed. is what they call it. Like you said, bankruptcy, divorce, flunk out of college. So they have brief thoughts of ending their life. Well, I could just, I should just go ahead and kill myself. But oftentimes it's not a serious thought. My depression, major depressive disorder, is generally not situational. I've been most depressed suicidal at some of the best times in my life. It's just like a real with a flat spot for me. It comes up every now and then. Well, during, during the pandemic, there were a lot of people who were situationally depressed. Oh, yeah. Uncertainty of it all. And I actually did a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends. Because most of, most of my friends who are mentally ill have a self-care plan. Mm -hmm. And we've been practicing it every day since I can't tell you when. Because we wake up in an uncertain world every day. So you got to be able to do something to get out of bed. So I taught neurotypical people how to create a self-care plan to practice during the pandemic to help them get out of bed in the morning. Mm. So it's usually transient, those thoughts. I'm, I'm sure I like to bunch a majority of people have a thought or two at some point in their life based on a situation. You know, I should just kill myself. Yeah. yeah. But ideation means you are planning you for example if somebody if you ask somebody they're suicidal and they said yes well then you say do you have a plan and if they have a plan you say what is the plan if the plan happens to be detail time place and method you need to do your best to get into a mental health facility wow well, get them on the phone with a new three-digit suicide prevention lifeline 988 they finally got a three-digit suicide prevention lifeline or if they're younger millennial gen z there's a suicide prevention text line, 741741. Because younger people tend to be more forthcoming about their emotions in text than talking. Mm -hmm. So, but if they are suicidal and they don't have a detailed plan, there's nothing in the literature on this. So a psychiatrist and I came up with it. I would say to them, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? If they said no, I would say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever is keeping me. Because something, parents, kids, pets, religion, something's keeping them here. Mm. Called a turning point in suicide prevention, where you can get them to voice that thing that's, that's keeping them on the planet. 
then you can leverage that. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I was trying to get to that a minute ago with 2010. If I remember correctly, you came the closest. Yep. What What kept you from pulling that trigger? The life insurance wasn't paid up. Oh, that okay. That's that whole story in there. Okay. Yeah, that that I'll, I had to have the policy 24 months, so my wife would get a million dollars. I had it 22 months, and I was not going to leave her brokenhearted and broke. Mm. And the million dollars, John, there's you hear people say. Suicide is a self-check. Well, from the outside looking in, definitely. From the inside looking out, there's something called burdensomeness. You feel the world or the people in your world would be better off without you. I knew my wife would be better off financially without me. It's burdensomeness. So you just figure, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it because everybody I know, my family or whatever, would be better off without me. So it's almost a selfless act because you're doing everybody a favor by checking out. Mm. It's, it's irrational, but that's the thought process. So I tell parents, like, if you have a child, teenager, college age, whatever, and they've had thoughts of suicide, just every now and then, just, just out of the blue, say, look, I know it crossed your mind occasionally that you, that we would be better off without you. But in no uncertain term, we would not ever be better off without you. Mm, mm. Rather than say you have so much to live for, which is not going to make a dent. Tell them what, you know, join the conversation in their head. We would never, ever be better off without you. Mm, that's powerful stuff, Frank. Well, I know that I've been situationally depressed and I've, you know, I've had a few suicidal thoughts. Don't, never came close to anything. One time somebody asked me if I had a plan <laughs> and, you know, God bless them. I, did, I didn't have a plan, but, you know, I was so down on myself. Seven years ago, I've shared this pretty openly on the show, but one of the reasons I'm even talking to you is because seven years ago, I had a giant situational issue that caused me to have a pretty big breakdown, uh, a career that just kind of fell apart that I'd had for a long, long, long time. And I found myself just getting fat and going broke and lost in life in way up in middle age, you know, yeah. I didn't know what I was going to do. And, 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 and it took me a year to figure out how to start a company that we've now had for seven years and we're very successful with it. But the reason I started this podcast, I have a different music oriented podcast that's very popular and, the reason I started this one is I wanted to have a broader conversation mm. and I wanted to be able to be just be able to talk openly and, and, and more authentically. Not that the other one is inauthentic. I'm backing myself into a corner here, but it, that one's very, very specific about songwriting and music. And we don't really get to a lot of uh, this kind of a, a, a topic and a talk, you know what I mean? And that's in the faith-based space and it's awesome. But I wanted to have, be able to have conversations with people that are maybe from a different faith system or no faith system and just whatever, but talk about things that are really real and vital like this. And to me, this is an incredibly important topic, but back to myself, cause I am my, my own favorite subject that, you know, I just, man, I was melting down and I always thought that the word apathetic meant that you didn't care. And what I learned when I was at this rock bottom place, man, that it meant that you couldn't care. I mm -hmm. was so down and I was so fuzzed up in my brain. I couldn't think straight. And I was very ashamed 
of what happened. I was ashamed that I had lost a job, you know, in kind of an eighth grade scenario. And here I was a 58 year old man. And I take a lot of the responsibility for what happened. I, I no longer blame the people that I was involved with. I love them. I wish them well. But there were some really dark times where, you know, taking myself out started becoming attractive. So how do you, I know how I got out of it because I felt like the voice of God or the voice of a spirit or my own brain, I don't know what it was, but I, it stopped me on a sidewalk walking around my neighborhood in Nashville. And, and, and I heard it louder than my own voice right now. And it said, you're not even being a good human right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it started me down a path of self-discovery that has blown me away. I'm not even the same person I was seven years ago. But what what would you say to someone who maybe is in that place of feeling apathetic and, and lost and they just can't see the the light at the proverbial tunnel anymore? How, what, what would be the first thing you'd say to them? Maybe they're not quite at 988, but right. they know they're down. They know that these thoughts are becoming more frequent. What what would you say to them? Well, the thoughts I have, the thoughts often, the people often have in this area are, it's coping mechanism <laughs> dispensed by your brain. It's a rather, it's <laughs> kind of a sledgehammer. Well, you can just kill yourself, you know? It's, uh, so it's, especially with people like me who have that, those feelings all the time. It's just a way of coping to ease the stress. And I would say, first of all, we need to get a mental health evaluation. Let's find out it, if it is in fact clinical depression, or maybe it's the depressive state of bipolar disorder, or or let's and I get a physical. Sometimes physical ailments present as mental health issues like depression. And so once we've nailed it down, and then if medication is indicated, my advice is they now have a DNA cheat swab test. They take your DNA and they try to match it to, let's say, the antidepressant or two that would work best with your metabolism. So there's not a lot of the experimentation. Go on, doesn't work, taper off. Go on, doesn't work, taper off. And therapy is, I, I would think, it, tr tr trouble now, John, is finding a therapist. Because they are all, you know, any therapist I know, psychiatrist, psychologist, were booked out. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really hard. Thank you, COVID. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it was, it's been really good for therapists. Their calendars are right, right? They they were abandoned and neglected when we were all riding high. Yeah, but all of a sudden, everybody need. Well, and that was the if there was another silver lining of the pandemic, it was that the suicide rate actually came down about a point and a half, mm. except for for one group. Teenagers, college students, that age group. Hmm. What went up was a million extra call, million extra calls to the suicide prevention lifeline. So people finally felt like they had to reach out, which is probably why the rate came down. Now, in my case, with chronic suicidal ideation, I believe that most people who die by suicide don't want to kill themselves. When Naomi Judd died, several people asked me, why was somebody who's got everything to live for want to kill themselves? And I said, well, Probably she didn't want to kill herself. She simply wanted to end the pain. I, I didn't want to kill myself. I just wanted to end the pain. But now, John, that I have chronic suicidal ideation and I've already 
made a deal with myself, I can kill myself at any time. I can stand a great deal more pain because I know that I have control over the situation. So ironically, that thought keeps me alive because I know if it got that bad, I could just end it. Mm. And on the subject of religion, by the way, I am, I am not particularly religious first. However, if someone came to me and said, listen, I'm depressed, I've got suicide, I would say, aren't you a church goer? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sundays and then Wednesday Bible study. Oh, all right. You feel like you're strong in Christ? Yes. Well, have you spoken to your minister about this? Well, what do you say your minister and I and you get together and form a team and tackle this thing? I'm going to leverage whatever it is that their, their philosophy, their religious beliefs. I believe when you, when you're helping somebody like that, you don't layer your own beliefs on top of theirs. You meet them right where they are and leverage whatever they believe. You don't say this, you know, if you kill yourself, you go to hell. One of my neighbors said that to me shortly after I came so close. And I said, what you don't know is I was already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing you do not want to, even if you firmly believe it, unless they believe that, then fine. But yeah, use whatever it is. is going to keep a lot. Mm. Mm. Wow. Tell us a little bit about guts. <laughs> my mom would go on that happy note. I know it kind of sucked the air out of the room there for just a minute, but yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah. I, I, I bet you have some moments like that where you're, you're trying to lighten the room up a little bit and you drop one of your dark jokes and it just like, heck. it's like shattering glass. Cause I like to take the audience on a sort of an emotional roller coaster ride. You know, to laugh and then cry and then laugh and then cry. Because there's this expression in speaking. They may not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. I had a woman come up to me in Iowa after I spoke to an agricultural group. She goes, you made me laugh twice and cry once. I said, my work is done. Because <laughs> if you can reach them emotionally. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I tell a very, very sad story near the end about, she will ask me, why don't you kill yourself? And I've got a story. You know, like, like, tell me why not? Tell me why I don't pull the trigger. I've got a very it's a sad story about my mom. And I mean, people are crying in the audience. And then I say, listen, I'll, let me close on a lighter note. And I've got a funny story about an Uber ride. Yeah, kid who asked me, you know. So yeah, I liked it, that balance of, because uh, you're crying and you hit it with a joke. It's like, it's like shattered glass. Like, mm. <laughs> Comic <laughs> relief. Well, yeah. I have to, I have to tell you, man, I teared up watching your Ted talk when you read the note from your grandmother. Yes. And oh my gosh, that talk about a gut wrenching note just pinned to her chest. Yes. Well, oh. Emma, as you recall, I had a woman read it out loud. I have friends yes. who lives with depression who voiced it for me. So here, they say in a TED talk, you have a surprise to the audience. So I, I have my grandmother's suicide notes. I put it up on the screen as a PowerPoint mm -hmm. slide. Now they think I'm going to read it or they're going to read it. And all of a sudden in this darkened theater, mm -hmm. out of the darkness comes a woman's voice. My dear children, I am so sorry to leave you. You could hear the goosebumps pop. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was, yeah, it had the impact. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I wanted, yeah, it should be a surprise for the audience. 
How does it stay fresh for you? I mean, you're telling these stories, you're speaking, you know, you're working on your eighth TED appearance. Congratulations and coaching people on how to do that. I think I'm going to ring your phone about that. But, you know, here you're telling these stories. It's kind of like when I sing songs that I wrote 30 years ago. How do you keep it fresh? How does it stay fresh in your heart and mind? I I go back to that point in time and I do my best to bring the audience with me. I tell comics, that's how, you know, comics will say to me, I say funny things in passing, you know, in everyday life. I, I don't know how to translate that to the stage. I say, well, you have to paint the picture. You have to take them back to wherever it was and paint the picture vivid enough that they, they get the joke. And so I take them back to my great aunt's kitchen. The food on the counter. My mother, you know, the old lock time refrigerator. You can see the buildup coming. My mom not knowing what had happened. I'm holding onto her skirt at four years old. I mean, she swings the door. Mm, all of a sudden, I got chills because I'm right back there in that kitchen. So that that's how I, you know, in, in comedy, I've done my stand-up 10,000 times. Right. Yeah, the magic of Robin Williams, by the way. I saw him do two shows back-to-back -back at the comedy store. I was working at the comedy store. He was there. And shows almost identical. Different people in the audience he talked to, but the jokes were roughly the same. The magic was he made it look like it just occurred to him. Yeah. That is the magic. Brilliant. Making it fresh for the audience mm. every time. Mm. Frank, I knew this would be really rich. You're doing such important work, and there are probably just an untold number of people who have not pulled the trigger or or tied the noose or whatever they were considering because of your words, because of your, just your life's experience and your superpower of vulnerability. And I want to thank you for, for what you do for people. It, it's so awesome. And I have one last question for you, if that's all right today. Absolutely. Put you on the spot. Okay. Of a million jokes, you know, you wrote, you heard. <laughs> What's the one joke you'd take to the moon? the it's actually a joke that a friend of mine wrote about going in the moon okay right. about neil armstrong <laughs> his name is oh he's a science he's a science comic how can you be a science comic <laughs> he was the only science comic going he talked he did jokes about science it was amazing <laughs> anyway I'll, I'll think of his name but he said i'm watching the you know the replay of neil armstrong stepping on the moon and Brian, Brian Mallow, Brian Mallow, science comedian. He's gone over to Europe to this gathering of Nobel laureates to speak and do his comedy. And it's an amazing story. He's been invited several times. I got to interview them for podcasts. There's people that won Nobel Prize. Anyway, he goes, Neil Armstrong, you know, he's getting late. He's the first guy on the moon. And he says, and don't get me wrong. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind is good. But you are the first person on the I would have thrown the script out away. <laughs> and as soon as my toe hit the moon soil, I'm on the moon. <laughs> you know, the world is listening. I don't care. I'm on the moon. <laughs> That's my favorite. Or the brewing joke. Oh my God. There you go. Frank, as we wrap up, tell us a little bit about Guts, Grit, and the Grind. It's a four book series on men's mental health. One of my co authors, Sarah Gare, teaches 
suicide prevention to first responders, mostly men. She wanted to buy a book for one of her students on men's mental health. Couldn't find one. Barnes and Noble, brick and mortar, no. Amazon, online, no. She thought, well, there's a vacuum. So we surveyed men. What do you want in the way of a book on mental health for men? They said, we want real men with real stories and real coping mechanisms. So that's the way we planned it. And they decided, Sarah and Dr. Sally Spitzer-Thomas, my co-author. Wait, you know her? <laughs> yeah, I do know her. Decided they would make it look like an automobile owner's manual so the guys would actually pick it up. So the two ladies called me, because I know Sally, and she goes, would you make the book funny and would you add the metaphors? And I said, wait a minute. You two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health. Don't you think you might need, I don't know, a man? Oh, my God. So I said, look, let me, I made me a co-author. Let me narrate him for Audible. And I'll add the metaphors. I'll add the humor. So then we began to look for men. And we thought we could probably find a dozen guys, if we were lucky, who were willing to come forward and say, I have bankruptcy, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction, you know, whatever it was, whatever the problem was. Because men are very tight-lipped about these things. Well, we ended up finding 64 men. Mm. So we ended up with four books. Uh, Guts Green the Grounds of Four Book Series. And if you would like a, an audio book, unabridged copy, and I do the narration of the first book, if you go to The Mental Health Comedian, or as we say down south, John, The Mental Health Comedian, <laughs> put an email address in, you can download the unabridged audio book. I narrate it for free. First book. Eventually, I have all four up there for free because I don't want money to stand in the way of somebody who needs help. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and get this, we sell most of the books to women. Because of my guess is they're going to man their life. They just cannot figure out how to help. Mm. So it's a manual. I mean, it's got resources and exercises and suggestions and, and, of course, humor. My favorite is, don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light on his brain? When the light pops off, he goes to the mental mechanic, guy puts him up on the lift. Well, Bob, of course you're depressed. Look at this. You're too coarse low on serotonin. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> nice indeed. Frank, thank you so much, bro. This has been rich. And all of the all the links to all of your work is in the show notes for those of you listening. But man, this has been great. Thanks for being on. All the best. Thanks for Seth. Thanks for hanging out with me today on All The Best. If you like the show, be sure to share it out with your family and friends on your social media and drop me a line at john at johnchism.com. I would love to hear from you. I also want to invite you to jump over to my site right now to sign up for my free 31-day motivational email series. It's designed to help you go for all the best in life. If you're needing some real change, fresh motivation and inspiration, this could be just the thing to get get you going. You can find it at johnchism.com and I'll see you next time.